Hi there. It's great to see all of you here. It's great to see you this afternoon. Uh, I want to tell you something here. This is my son right here. Uh, my son, Alexander. He turns two next month. And uh, I tend to talk a lot about my daughter, uh, my daughter Mia, because my daughter Mia has like kind of a larger than life kind of personality. My son's a little more low key, um, but he is uh, he's like this incredibly loving kid. Um, he um, he when I get home from 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 the office and I just put my key into the, the keyhole, when he hears the thing turning and the doorknob turning, that kid from wherever he is, he drops whatever he has and he comes running. And uh, so by the time I open the door, I mean, he's right there. And uh, from the time that I get home and I, you know, he has me pick him up. Uh, until the time that he goes to sleep, that kid is right next to me at all times. In fact, if you uh, if you're here like in between services and I pick him up from the children's ministry, he, I'm like, he, I've got him, you know, because he doesn't want to go anywhere else. So that's just, that's kind of how he is. And um, and my, my wife and I are, are so blessed because he's uh, he's this incredibly loving and funny and, and, and obedient um, kid, you know. And at the same time, this little sweetheart of a kid that he is has the capacity for utter rebellion and total disregard for authority. Um, and and my, my son loves to climb. And so the uh, the problem is, is that his climbing is usually what gets him hurt. And uh, like the other day, I was taking out the garbage and uh, my wife, Carrie, was helping Mia with something. And uh, we ended up both kind of walking into the kitchen around the same time after I'd gotten back from taking out the garbage. Carrie from helping Mia, we walk into the uh, we kind of hear Xander making a noise. We walk into the kitchen and he's standing on the kitchen counter. With the cabinets open, looking around, like looking for something to eat or whatever, and like, kid, I take him down. Xander, no, no climbing, no kitchen counter, just go about your business. You know, just do you have a million toys in your room? No climbing. So we leave, and then if you've been a parent for more than like 20 minutes, you know what you're supposed to do. And so Carrie and I say, Carrie, wait, four, three, two, one. Let's go back in. We go back in. He's pushed. The step stool up against the kitchen counter. He's climbed on top of the step stool. One, he's got one leg on the kitchen counter, uh, onto the countertop. And, uh, and Carrie's ready to stop. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's just see how this plays out. And so, and, and as we, so we walk in and he's like pulling himself up by his, uh, with his upper body strength, gets himself up on the kitchen counter. And then he's like, <clears throat> you know, like he's, you know, like conquered, you know, Everest. And then he stands up. And he's opening the cabinets again. And that's when, I, you know, I go, <clears throat> and, and he's like, ah, you know, like, hey, I've been caught. And uh, so that, you know, and, and it's like this. The, the thing is, he knows not to climb. And yet that's why he does it. And it's because he is super cute, super loving. And he's also a little sinner. And that's just, it's just it's just what he is. You know, um, we told him recently uh, not to touch the outlets uh, because he was he was there's an outlet by the front door. And he, he was touching the outlets. Xander. No touching the outlets. So, and, and he's kind of look, gives me like the, the look like, you talking to me? You know, like a taxi driver. And I'm like, no, don't touch, Xander, don't touch the outlets. And then, and then Mia, or Carrie says, oh, Mia sometimes too. But Carrie says, Xander, no outlets. And so then he kind of, he, what he does is he goes and he puts his back up against the wall right next to the outlet. And then he takes his finger. And he just puts it like one inch away from the outlet. And then he looks at us like, I do this because it pleases me. Like that kind of look. And I'm like, 
where you didn't where did you you know where did you learn this stuff you know and, and here's the thing is that th- that struggle like this this kind of fight between doing what's right doing what's wrong sometimes doing what's right sometimes not doing what's right is the struggle that all of us have as people because as human beings we are a fallen people since the garden of eden we inherited a sin nature a bent towards rebellion against god that fights the good that we want to do and this struggle that all of us experience this struggle between, do I do what's right? Do I not do what's right? Man, I wanted to do what's right, but I didn't. And, and th- that, that whole fight and that whole struggle is really at the heart of Romans chapter 7. So if you would, I'd invite you to turn to Romans 7 with me, because that's where we're going to be. And uh, because all of us, inside of us, we have this, this struggle, this battle between the flesh, our old nature, and then the spirit, our, our new nature, the, the, the part of us that, that God is, is working in. In fact... In uh, Galatians chapter five, in your notes, here's what uh, here's what Paul would write in another area. He says this for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You see, all of us struggle. We have this struggle to change, to become the person that we ideally want to become. And and that's what we've been talking about in this series as we journey through Romans, and we've been calling Inside Out. The the series is because we we believe that transformation has to start somewhere, but transformation actually has to start from the inside and work its way out. Transformation does not happen by way of modifying externals and just kind of tweaking the externals. Instead, transformation happens internally, and it sets off a chain reaction in our lives that works its way out. And the truth is, is that there's essentially three ways to live and three ways to deal with this struggle as to how it is that you're going to deal with the struggle between flesh and spirit, between old nature and new nature and the good and evil at work um, in, in you and in me. And I put it in your notes, but, but here's, here's what, how to deal with it. Number one, one way to deal with it is you can be irreligious. Irreligious, that is, that you just live however you please because nobody's going to tell you what to do and that... You know, faith and God do not factor into the equation uh, of, of your life. That's one. Two is you, you can be irreligious or you can be number two, religious. That is you, where you do your very best to hide the fact that the flesh and the spirit are struggling. And you simply strive to cover up the externals. If you remember in, the, in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, that's what they did, right? They simply tried to cover up the fact that they had sinned. So they, they bit of this fruit they weren't supposed to. It says their nakedness was exposed. And instead of coming to God and saying, God, I need you to save me. Here's what happened. Instead, they sought to, they sewed fig leaves together to simply cover up the fact that they were fallen people. And see, that's what religion does. It just, it creates a skin deep facade that doesn't show the fact that there's any cracks, any problems. Or then there's the third way, and that is that you can believe the gospel. That, that is that you can believe the gospel, and you can that, believing the gospel is this: that you believe that you recognize that you are a fallen, sinful, messed up person who has absolutely no hope in the world apart from the grace of God. Now you might say, uh, "Isn't that the religious way?" Well, it, 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 it should be because really we, we think of the term religion and, and the term that religion and faith and knowing God and walking with God, that they should be synonymous, but they're really not. Because a person can be completely religious, that is, follow a set of rules and be totally far from God. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. 
And so what happens is, is that when we get to Romans 7, the Apostle Paul is going to be very autobiographical, not with what he used to struggle with, but instead what he is struggling with. The challenges that he currently is having as the flesh and the spirit strive together, as the good and evil at work in him strive together. And so Paul essentially kind of walks through this irreligious, religious, and then he discovers the beauty of embracing the gospel and what it does in his life. And that's where we're going to begin in chapter in chapter 7 in verse 1 of Romans 7. Here's what it says. It says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And so then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, will she be called an adulteress? Uh, if, 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 but if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, what's the struggle that we have? here? here if we're going to deal with the struggle, here, here's what we have to do, number one in your notes, if you're taking notes. And number one is this, is that I need to realize the problem. Realize the problem. Many times we don't experience change, we don't experience transformation because we don't believe that there's a literal problem. We don't believe that there's an issue that needs to be dealt with. Because listen, whether you realize it or not, as human beings, we have an amazing capacity for self-deception. We have an amazing capacity. Uh, I, 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 seriously, I am amazed at our ability as people to live completely in denial of what's going on, even amidst the facts that are happening before us. You see, when I was first starting in ministry, when I was, I had just graduated from college and I was an intern pastor and I was kind of learning the ropes, uh, so to speak, um, I, a guy came in because he had, he, he wanted to talk to a pastor about his quote unquote little problem that he had. And so now the little problem as he talked to me, and this is years and years ago, the little problem was that he was hooked on crack. Um, his wife had kicked him out of the house. He had lost his job and he was living in his car. I mean, this is like the makings of a country western song. And, uh, you know, and so, he, he tells me all of this and I'm listening and he's like, you know, I got this little problem. And then he tells me all this. And, and I said to him, I said, um, I said, dude, are you on crack right now? And he said, no. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah. I said, because to describe that as a little problem, you must be on crack. And, uh, and, 
Now, you know, I probably wouldn't say that today like that. Uh, you know, it's like not the nicest way to say it. Um, and, you know, but when you're 24, 25, you kind of think you know everything, and so you say whatever. But I, I will say this. I do agree with the assessment, not the way I said it, but that is that the guy was not going to experience change in his life until he realized there was a serious problem. And, and the challenge that, that Paul brings up in these verses is, is that if, if we aren't like serious in stating the problem, change is never going to come. Because here's kind of how, how it works in, in, in the verses that we read. The irreligious person, that is the person, no law, I don't care. Here, the irreligious person says, there is no problem. I am who I am. That's just deal with it. The religious person says there is a problem, but I need to hide it. I need to cover it up. The gospel teaches us something different, though. It teaches us a third way. And that is that it teaches us to say this. There is a problem and I need Jesus to save me. You see, I want you to think about for a minute, if we can be a little bit biographical on the character of Paul as we kind of ramp up to these to these verses. Um, Paul, if, if you're not aware, um, was before he was a Christian, um, he was a Pharisee. And that is that he was part of the strictest sect of Judaism. He was uh, a leader of the Pharisees. In fact, he was so religious, so strict in his observance of Judaism that he was the envy of all of his, of his colleagues and contemporaries because he excelled even further because of the strictness of his religion. In fact, listen to what he says. These are his words in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I want you to think about this for a minute. Paul, Paul is a picture of the religious man, a picture of a religious guy. He is meticulously following all 613 laws in the Old Testament. But then something happened to him. See, he was... He was going about his business. And then what happened was, is that he was reading the Ten Commandments. And that's what we read in verse 7. He says, for I would not have known what sin was except the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And something happened. You see, there's something, when you read the Ten Commandments, um, you can look on and know if you're obeying the commandment or not obeying it. So if you look on, you know, the Bible says don't commit adultery, right? So that's a very easy way. There's an easy way to tell, right? You look, hey, that's not my husband. That's not my wife, right? That's a very easy way to tell if you're committing, the, you're obeying, not obeying, right? Don't murder. Is he dead? Yes. Oh, well, maybe you're, 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 you're breaking that command. Well, then here's what happens, right? Very easy. But then he gets to don't covet. But see, there's no way to actually tell. Because you can't look at someone and say they're coveting right now. In fact, it's an internal command. And that's when Paul realized that all that he had done, these constructs that he had built to follow every single law meticulously, externally what he realized is that the laws of God are not just external. The law to not covet taught him that the laws of God were internal as well. And all of the religiosity, everything showing, oh, I kept the law meticulously, was all just a facade. 
It was all a facade keeping him that he had hiding that he really needed God. But he was hiding it by trying to keep the rules. And listen, you and I can do this if we're not careful. You and I can try to kind of like walk with God. Oh, but is, is it, am I technically sinning or is it technically okay? And we try to like create this razor thin line between, well, is it technically right or technically wrong? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to, to couples over, you know, whatever, 15 years now. And, and, and they, they're telling me that, well, they're not technically having sex. You see, well, we're doing everything except have sex. Right. Listen, couples, if you're dating and you're you're doing everything except have sex, can I just give you a little newsflash here? Um, You're having sex. Oh, no, pastor, we're not going all the way. So we're okay. Listen, just because you're not putting the football, putting the ball in the end zone doesn't mean you ain't playing football. Okay. Um, Now, I know there's probably a better way to say that. I just haven't thought of it yet. Um, But we got to stop thinking that we, well, no, see, because technically, no, we have to stop thinking that we can fool God. Listen, God is not the federal government. God does not have all these technicalities and loopholes that we can walk through and still, and still get by and still be quote-unquote legal. Gospel thinking. You see, religious thinking is thinking, well, technically it's okay, and, and I create this construct of rules. That this is in, this is out. No, here's what happens. That's religious thinking. Gospel thinking is when I realize that I have a relationship with God. Relationships are not based on loopholes and technicalities. Listen, unless, of course, you want to save yourself, because that's possible. You see, there is a way to get to heaven apart from Jesus. Huh? Yeah, it's called perfection. You see, you can live a perfect life, never sin, and then you can come to the end of your life and then demand that God let you into heaven. I'm not a religious person, but I I lived a perfect life. Uh, you, say, you might say, okay, I'm going to start right now. Well, you do have one problem. That is everything you've done up until this point. And so, but once again, you say, well, there's perfection or there's, you know, the gospel. And people say, well, door number one is perfection. I'll take whatever is behind door number two because I'm staying. There's no way that I'm get, that perfection is going to work. But here's what happens. And this is where we get, we can get really mixed up. And that is that we can start acting as though we're trying to earn it. As though we're trying to earn heaven. And listen, it's, that's simply religion. Looking, through, looking at God at, through the loopholes that we create. The Jewish faith is a series of laws that get more and more complicated with every passing generation. Um, it, it's a religion based on keeping the laws to earn God's favor. There's so much we can learn about Judaism, um, you know, in, in the Old Testament and all that. But um, it, it, that's essentially what it is. It, it's, it's a religion based on keeping the laws to earn God's favor. And so, so here, so you have the Ten Commandments, right? Let's pick one. Um, the Bible says, um, do no, you know, it says, uh, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. In fact, it says, um, to not, be, don't bear a burden on the Sabbath. That is, don't, essentially, here's what he says, God says on the Sabbath, rest. So you say, well, what, what do you do, do for, for a living? Well, um, maybe somebody says, well, here's what I do. I, I swing a hammer all day, 40 hours a week. So what should I do on the Sabbath? Well, don't swing a hammer. Do something else. You know, well, should I take up plumbing? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you should just, just rest. Just relax. Go see a movie. Go hang out with your kids. Go throw a football around. Just go do anything that doesn't involve work and just rest. Reconnect with God. Reconnect with your friends and your family and those around you in your, in your world. But see, that's not... Well, what does it mean to rest? I mean, because we want to be technically right. And so... 
One verse, right? Simple verse. Just rest on the Sabbath. If you look at the Talmud, the Talmud is a book that is a commentary on how to live out the commands of the Torah, the commands of the the, the Old Testament, the first five books of, of, of the Old Testament. It will have the Talmud has 24 chapters on how to keep the Sabbath. By the way, if any of you suffer from insomnia. Um, I promise if you Google it, you'll, you'll, you'll find an online copy of it, and I promise you'll be asleep by chapter 2, because uh, it's, it's some, some pretty dry reading. Um, but here's the thing. Let me give you some examples of things that happen. Um, on the Sabbath, um, if you have a wooden leg, you can't put on your wooden leg on the Sabbath because that uh, would be considered bearing a burden. So sorry, you know. You can hop on the Sabbath, but you can't walk. You can't use a wooden leg on the Sabbath because that would be considered work. Um, if uh, like you. So speaking of walking on the Sabbath, you can only walk a thousand feet at a time. Be, and you say, well, how'd they come to that? In fact, if you read the book of Acts in the book of Acts, uh, it, they said, um, well, they went to this place and it was about a Sabbath day's walk. The reason is there was two Pharisees. This is a true story. And one tied a rope around the other's waist and one guy started walking. And he started walking up to the point where he felt one bead of sweat and he stopped. And it was about a thousand feet. Now, obviously, this, these two, you know, Jews did not live in South Florida. Uh, because if, if it was that, the Sabbath day's walk would be about four feet. Uh, it's just, woo, I'm sweating. Let's go back into the AC and think about this some more. But that, you know, in the Middle East, they got about a thousand feet, felt one bead of sweat. That's as far as we go. Because one, a thousand and one feet is work. Thousand feet, you're okay. You still haven't worked, and so all anything that that would be a, a Sabbath violation because sweating is labor, and that's a viola, that's a Sabbath violation. So when I was in Israel uh, several years ago, we had our, we were in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and uh, we were staying at a hotel there uh, uh, in in Jerusalem, and um, it was and we had known about this, but. We got there and uh, we, it was a full day of touring. I mean, we had gone see all this stuff um, uh, kind of on the outskirts of, of Jerusalem. And so we got back and we were all just dead tired. I mean, you know, this has been like day nine of a 14 day tour or something. Um, and so we get back to the um, we get back to the, the the hotel and we get on the elevator and everybody's just standing there as the door closes. Nobody touches any of the buttons. The reason is, is because. You touching, pressing the button on the Sabbath is a Sabbath violation. It's work. Now, you can go up the stairs. That's not a Sabbath violation. Pressing the button is a Sabbath violation. So you can, you know, play this game at home. Say, what, 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 is, what do you think exerts more energy? Pushing a button or fl- climbing up eight flights of stairs. Um, but so what happens is, is that they go up and the whole thing is that they. So how do you so how does how does everybody get to their floor? Well, on the Sabbath, they have it programmed to where the elevator stops and opens at every floor. And then it does it all the way down. So imagine if you're on like the 14th floor and you're so tired, you can't even see straight. And then it's like. Number four, nobody gets on. Like all of us are like floors 10 and up, like, please. Five. And the whole thing is, no, we're going to keep you from sinning by pressing the button for you. The problem is I'm sinning in my mind saying, I want to hurt the person who programmed this thing. I'm going to get to my room. And that's the and this is the thing. Right. It's this. And so the whole thing is, but we've got to figure out how we how we how we can not work. But listen, it's this never ending struggle to grasp what God already offers us in the gospel. Rest. Listen to what Jesus would say. It's in your notes. 
He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, that term yoke and burdens and all of that, this is, this is all very rabbinic language that Jesus is using. Um, it's a word to describe um, a yoke is what a rabbi would call his interpretation of, uh, of the Torah. And so it was his interpretation of how you did all 613 commands. Um, it was what was called in Hebrew their, their halakha. Uh, and that is, it meant their interpretation of the law. And so what would take place is, is that um, a rabbi would tell his disciples, you may do this on the Sabbath, but you may not do that on the Sabbath. And then another rabbi might have another, a little bit of a variation on that. But whichever rabbi you were following, you were taking their yoke, their interpretation of the law upon you, because your goal as a disciple or a a, uh, a, a Talmud, um, is that you wanted to be exactly like your rabbi. And so the idea is this. Um, now, I want to contrast this because we're talking about Paul was a Pharisee, right? Now, I, I, here's what I want to contrast it with. Listen to what Jesus says about the Pharisees. He says, this, it's in your notes, says, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say... And do not do for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Here's the thing that I find fascinating when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And Jesus says about the about the Pharisees, they lay heavy burdens, yoke and heavy burdens, the same word. He's talking about their interpretation of the law. And here's the thing that the contrast that Jesus is making is this, is that the only, the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees, is that his yoke is easy and light. And theirs is heavy and burdensome. And that is the difference between religion and the gospel. Listen, religion will weigh you down and burn you out and wipe you out because everything is about trying to appear as though you're perfect and nothing's wrong. But here's what the gospel does. It sets people free. He goes on in verse 13. We're going to talk about this a little further in this next section. Here's what Paul says. He says, um, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate. That I do. If then I do what I will not to do, then I agree that the law with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells for to will is to is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find for the good that I will to do. I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. But if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, um, here's the second thing that I want to share with you. And that is this, um, that the first is, is that, um, that that you have to we have to recognize. Oh, I'm sorry, that we, have, we have to realize the problem. We talked about that. 
The second thing is that I've got to recognize my weaknesses. I've got to recognize my weaknesses. Um, let me explain it this way. My, my daughter, Mia, um, just en- she's four and a half. She entered into a brand new stage of life a couple weeks ago. Um, I let her watch Star Wars for the first time. And uh, she, is, I mean, it's, 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 she loves it. And, uh, and, I mean, to say that she loves Star Wars really is an understatement. Um, I- I've watched Return of the Jedi more times in the last month than I have in the last five years. Uh, because she just, all the time, what do you want to do? Let's watch Return of the Jedi in, or something, you know. So we listen to the Star Wars soundtrack on the way to school. Um, when I play guitar, because I think I told you we do concerts at the house, I play guitar, Mia sings, Xander does background vocals, and my wife is the audience. And um, so we, we used to do all these different songs. Now it's only Star Wars songs. So I've had to learn the Star Wars theme songs uh, on guitar, and, um, and then my daughter makes up words. And then she wrote an original Star Wars song. Uh, Star Wars song. It, it's actually pretty awesome. It's called Star Wars, Star Wars, I Love You. It's an awesome song. It's an awesome song. We're going to record it. Um, uh, <laughs> the words are really good. I'll tell you about them sometime. But, um, so anyway, but she's made up all these words to the, to the songs. And, uh, but we were watching Empire Strikes Back uh, about a month ago for the first time. And, um, and, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the scene, you know, the climactic scene at the end and you know, uh, Darth Vader says, you know, Luke, I am your father. You know, and, and it's like, you know, she freaked out. I mean, she's, and she says to me, you know, she's sitting next to me like really tight because, you know, Luke is getting beat up. And, you know, and she's like, she's like, Bobby. So Darth Vader is actually Luke's father. And I said, yes, mama. And she goes, whoa. <laughs> and then my favorite part was a minute later. And she says, Bobby. That's a lot like Buzz Lightyear and Zerg. And I said, yeah, I guess it is. And, uh, and, uh, and so, but now I tell you that because there's this scene in, uh, in, in, in Empire Strikes Back where, where Luke is training with Yoda and then he goes into the cave, if you remember. Um, and then, um, you know, Darth Vader appears and they fight and then, uh, Luke whacks him in the head with the, with the lightsaber and then his helmet rolls, if you remember that, that scene. If not, spoiler alert. And, uh, and so, but anyway, they, 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 that whole thing happens, and then the helmet explodes, and Luke's face is in the Darth Vader helmet, and, and Mia, that like erupted all these questions that Mia had, like, is, is Luke Darth Vader, you know, because she didn't know what was going on, and, and I said, no, Mia, the point of the cave was to show Luke that everyone has good and bad inside of them, and, uh, but we have to choose to do good, and, and so I, I asked her, I said, Mia, do you, do you find that sometimes... You know the right thing to do, but sometimes it's hard to do it. And she said, yeah. She said, but, but sometimes I ask God to help me to make the right choice. And I said, oh, that's great. And so we had like this awesome moment. And I'm like, see, God is there. God can help us and God can strengthen us. And now I'm like preaching the gospel with Yoda in the background. It's awesome. And we're talking about this with her. And then and, like we're, and I'm thinking, man, she's getting this. She's getting this. And then like a minute later, you know, I thought she's going to ask me another question. She's probably, um, she says, can we get a Wookiee as a pet? And I'm like, no. Remember, we had like this thing. Remember, good and evil. Yeah, but wouldn't it be awesome to have a Wookiee like Chewbacca? And I'm like, forget it. You know, and by the way, no, you can't have a pet. And, uh, but, and here's the thing. The thing, the thing is this. She, my, my daughter is, is, is learning this, is that all of us, what all of us know, is that there is a struggle between doing what's right and doing what's wrong. 
And that's what Paul says. He's so frustrated with himself. And, and I hope that you can hear the frustration in his voice when he says, for that which I will to do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And it's like this, this frustration that he has between doing what's right and, 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 and succumbing and doing what's wrong. And I don't know if you've ever, if I can ask this, have you ever been really amazed at something that you've done? Um, I, I don't mean like good amazed, like, you know, when I finished the Olympics. I don't mean that, you know. I mean like amazed, like I cannot believe I just ate that entire cake. That kind of amazed, right? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you've, you've, said, you've been like, I cannot believe I just said that. I cannot believe I just did that. I can't believe I just thought that. I think we've all had moments. I mean, some of us are like, yeah, it was like an hour ago. You know, you know like all of us have had that, right? Um, listen, even those of us who love God and we're following Jesus and we're reading all of that, right? We're trying to do the right thing. We all have those moments where we're like, I just can't believe that I said that or did that. Um, this week, uh, I, I read the... Uh, I read the book. I'd seen the movies in the past, but I actually read the book, uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, and it was recommended to me, and I read it, and I absolutely loved it. It was such a fascinating book. And uh, what I learned was is that the reason that he's called, uh, that, that Dr. Jekyll names this alter ego that he has, he names him Edward Hyde, was a play on the word, is because it's this kind of evil that's within all of us. That, um, but see, but it's hideous and it's hidden. And that's why he calls it, that's why he calls him um, Edward Hyde. And um, because the thing is this, is that this, this evil that's within all of us, this propensity and this ability to do unspeakable evil is within all of us. And we want to hide it from other people and, we cert- and many times we want to hide it from ourselves. And I want you to think about this um, because we don't actually think we're as bad as we really are. We think we're actually not that bad. And, and the, re, the way that you can tell this is when you see your sin on somebody else. If you see whatever it is that you're struggling with on somebody else, you ever notice this? You think, God should really judge that person. God should drop the hammer on that guy for what he's doing. But then on you, oh God, you know I'm struggling and you know, just forgive me and not, you know, I love you. And, 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 right? And then, but you see it on somebody else and you're like, up with his head! Right, and then you know, and then on you, and it's like, oh God, you know, I'm messing up, you know, and it's like, what happened? Because we don't think we're actually as bad as we really are, and then we see it on somebody else, and it's hideous, and on us, we're just like, wow, but you got to understand, and my intentions were, and but what happened? It's because we don't understand how deeply sinful we are. You see, many of us are under the impression that we came to Jesus, and Jesus is just going to give us like a few. We're pretty good, but He's going to tweak us a little bit. So we're really running on all eight cylinders. And but, you know, but before we were OK, but now we're going to be we're going to be doing a lot. But listen, um, the Bible teaches us the exact opposite of that. And that is that we are evil and carnal and sold into sin. And that's what he says in verse 13. For I am I am sold into sin wholesale. I'm done. Um, if I can bring back that story that I told you about the guy that I spoke to very harshly who had his quote unquote little problem. Um, the, what I didn't understand as a young minister um, was that he and I were exactly the same. There was no difference between him and I. He had an addiction to a drug, and so did I. But see, my drug of choice was different. My drug of choice was the approval of others. My drug of choice was pride. My drug of choice was my arrogance. And, um, and see, and I hid all of it. 
I hid all of it under my guise of, well, you know, I'm just a straight shooter. I say what I mean and say it mean. You know, that was kind of my, my, my thing. And, so, and you know what? I wasn't a straight shooter. I was a young, self-righteous, arrogant jerk and who, had, who, had been, who had kind of excelled. And, 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 and people saw maybe some talent and saw God's call in my life. And, and so I had this opportunity to maybe um, rise uh, uh, maybe a little bit beyond where my character ha- had, been, had been developed. And so the difference was this guy at least admitted that there was, even though he said it was a small problem, he admitted there was a problem. And I, in my self-righteousness, simply could try to cover it because, you know, I knew a few more Bible verses and uh, I, I just knew how to put it in spiritual lingo so that nobody could really say anything about my, my attitude. Um, in, in the book, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, the reason, and this is what's different from the book than, than the movies, um, Dr. Jekyll creates the potion which creates Edward Hyde. Because his, his goal is to split the good and the evil in him because he believes it will, he will be happier. And it's this philosophy that, that he has. And the, re, the philosophy is this, is that whenever I do good, I still feel guilty because of the evil that I've done. When I want to do evil, I feel guilty because I know that there's good that I should be doing. But if I could split both of those people, I could do good and not feel guilty. I could do evil and not feel guilty. And I could essentially operate in this duality. And, um, and then there's, but there's this, this is the, kind of the, one of the climactic scenes of the movie. Uh, to me, it's probably the most important scene of the book, I should say, is um, there's this scene where Dr. Jekyll is sitting in, on a bench, and uh, in, in, it says in, in Regent Park, he's sitting on a bench, and uh, thinking about um, all that, that's gone on in his life, because after he creates um, Edward Hyde, he realizes that Edward Hyde is much more evil than, than he had imagined. And Edward, Edward Hyde begins killing people. And he realizes then that uh, Dr. Jekyll does that he has to suppress um, Edward Hyde. And so what he does is to make up for the evil that he's done, he takes all of this money, all the money that he has, and he's a wealthy person, he takes all the money out and he starts doing all of this good, all this charity work, all this philanthropy to try to somehow cover up all of the evil that Edward Hyde had done. But something happened in the course of him doing all of this good as he started feeling very proud and very self-righteous. And he started thinking about how he had suppressed Edward Hyde and all of the good that he had done. And there's this line in the book where he says that he's he's sitting there at the bench in Regent Park and he's he's looking on at everyone else. And he said, I looked on at other men and I fancied myself better than they. He thought he was better than them. And right after he thinks that, something happens. He looks down, and he has become Edward Hyde. He hasn't taken... He, see, he used to have to take... He used to have to drink the potion to become Edward Hyde. But now, after his self-righteousness and his arrogance and his pride, he becomes Edward Hyde without taking the potion. In fact, later on in the book, he has to take the potion to become Dr. Jekyll again. And so... But the thing... The point is this. The point is exactly what Paul says. It's that the irreligious hide, I don't care about what, what God wants for me. I'm going to do what I want when I want. And I'm not going to let any outside uh, person or force restrict me. That the irreligious hide and the religious do-girder of Dr. Jekyll, who's trying 
to be righteous through his philanthropy, that they are essentially in the same boat. One, because he doesn't care about having a savior. The other, because he's trying to be his own savior. You see, the frustration that Paul has in these verses when he says, I just I'm doing what I don't want to do, the things I want to do, I'm not doing. And there's this frustration because he doesn't know how to win the struggle. And and, and and what happens is and I want you to know, you ever, you ever been there where you just you, there's the what you know to do. You don't do it. What you don't want to do, you end up doing it. And you're just like ready to pull your hair. out. I'm so frustrated. All of us have been there. And yet the, the thing that happens, and I want you to notice something in, in, in this chapter, is that Paul uses the word I, me or my 47 times as over and over again. It's like it's I and me and my and it's about me and what I'm doing and. 47 times next week, we're going to start looking at chapter eight and it's there's so much it will probably spend about three weeks looking at chapter eight. But here's the thing in chapter eight. The focus is not him. The focus is the spirit of God and the spirit of God at work in his life. In chapter seven, he uses I, me or my 47 times in chapter eight. He uses the word spirit 21 times. And that listen, Romans seven is about the struggle and Romans eight is about the victory. The theme of Romans 7 is that the flesh cannot win, but the theme of Romans 8 is that with the Spirit of God, you cannot lose. Uh, let me read you this last part in Romans, in Romans 7, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. He says in verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So then with my mind, I will serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. If you pause there and and give me your attention, here's the last point. And that is that I need to receive his help. I need to receive his help. You see, as I mentioned in the in the Stevenson book um, that Dr. Jekyll tries to cover up Hyde's actions by doing good, becoming a humanitarian. And that's what religion does. Religion just tries to cover up the evil actions and thoughts that are within us. And irreligion is, is, is what Mr. Hyde does. He just does evil and he doesn't care. The gospel does what Paul does in Romans seven when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He calls out to God. Now, in um, Saul, uh, Paul was from an area uh, in, in the Middle East, it was called Tarsus. And Tarsus, when a person uh, murdered someone else and was found guilty for murder, what they would do, uh, you know, it wasn't like here where you get found guilty and you basically get sent to like a Ritz-Carlton-esque prison. Um, then this is what they there. This is what they would do. Um, what they would do is they if you got found, you were guilty for murder. They would take the body of the person that you murdered and they would strap it on the back of the person who was the murderer. I mean, literally, they would strap it. And then everywhere he went, he had this dead body attached to him. I mean, it didn't matter where, where you went. I mean, it's like weekend at Bernie's gone bad. And uh, and but here's what would happen after a few days. I mean, the few days this this, you know, this body would begin to decompose. The body would begin to stink. And eventually, as the body began to decompose, there would be bacteria and infection that would transfer from that that dead body onto you. And that would be eventually how you died. Um, And essentially, the person that you killed would eventually kill you. And um, 
But here's the thing, and, and here's the thing, is that that body that you carried around, if you saw someone that had that, they would say, look, he has the body of death. But see, Paul in Romans 7, when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's saying this, it's not somebody else that's strapped to me, it's me who's strapped to me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, it's like I, this, this flesh that I struggle with is the, is, the, is the body that's keeping me from doing all that I want to do. So who's going to save me from this body of death? Not somebody else, somewhere else, you know, in some other place. No, no, no. My body, who's going to save, save me, Paul would say, from this body of death? Now listen, those of you that, that you say, I, I just, I want to change, I want God to transform my life, and that's if you're a Christian or not a Christian, I want you to listen very carefully for a moment. Because the words that I'm going to share with you are absolutely huge. If you want to see real change, I'm not talking about like cosmetic change in your life or, or just, you know, kind of tweaks. I'm talking about deep-rooted change that fundamentally changes who you are. I want, I want you to listen. The gospel is not that I do good and then God owes me. Instead, the gospel is that I am evil and sold into sin and Jesus saved me and forgave me. And any good that I do is simply gratitude for all that he has done for me. Because listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you want to, you say, well, I, I want to become a Christian, then the answer is in verses 24 and 25. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. You recognize that you're, you're a sinner, you're fallen, you're, you're, you're messed up. So wretched man that I am, who will save me? You realize that you're messed up and you're, you're in need of a Savior. And that's why in verse 25 he says, I thank God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, that there is a Savior. But if you are a Christian and you want victory in your life, then the answer is found in verses 24 and 25 as well. The answer is, listen, you've got to stop trying to change yourself. You've got to stop trying to be your own Savior. And you've got to cry out, verse 24, and say, God, I, I, I'm, I'm a wretched man. And that's when you're going to experience God. And listen, but the chapter doesn't end in verse 24. It ends in 25 because if he says, who would deliver me from this body of death and that's where it ended, that'd be a real bummer. But instead, he, he gives us the hope of that there is a Savior, that there is a God who can change him and save him and transform him. How do we do that practically? Two minutes. I want to share how you do this real practically. The way that you do this practically is that you have to unleash the power of the gospel in your own life. Listen, people... Ask me all the time, boy, it must be nice to preach the gospel to a lot of people. I say, it is. But, you know, I preach the gospel to myself a lot more. In fact, I preach the gospel to myself more than I preach the gospel to anybody else. Because, um, let me give you an example. And this is, this is what we have to do in our lives if we're going to experience real, real and lasting change. Um, how many of you were here last week? Can I ask you that question? Um, okay, many of you. So you know the story. I told you a story about how I got upgraded on my way home from Atlanta. And then I got on the plane and somebody was in my, my first class seat that I got upgraded. I was so excited I got upgraded to first class. I get there and somebody was in my seat. And, um, you know, and I was very upset to say the least. But then the seat next to me was open and I sat down, but I was still mad. Even though he was in my seat. Even though the seat that I actually wanted was the one I was sitting in. But I was mad that I didn't have the option. Because he was in my seat and... I would have preferred, if I sat down and I was in his seat, I would have been fine with it, but it's because he took my seat, I was really upset. And so I'm walking to the car, look, listening, thinking about all of this, and I realized that this is really all about my pride and my reputation. 
that there's something in me that just does not want to appear weak or appear like I can that that I don't want to be taken advantage of. And um, and here's what I had to do. I had to preach the gospel to myself. Or I'd still be mad. And, and, and what happens is, is that um, the, the, I had to remember that in the book of Philippians, chapter two, here's what the Bible says. It says that Jesus, the son of God, emptied himself and became took the form of a man and became nothing for the purpose of dying the death of the cross. And because he did, the Bible says that God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, I was, and I'm sitting there thinking about that, and I'm, and, I'm just, and I'm preaching that to myself. And I'm realizing that Jesus dealt with pride and reputation, and I don't want to be taken advantage of. He dealt with all of that at the cross, that the gospel deals with that. That I had to remember that, listen, somebody took your seat. But according to Romans 8, you're the heir of God. You're co-heirs with Christ. There's someone, there's something that nothing, there's something much greater that no one can take from you. And so maybe you've got to let go of pride and reputation if you want to do something great. Maybe if you want to have a name that God exalts, you have to let go of reputation and trying to force that to happen on your own. See, if you're struggling in your marriage, the answer is not a tip or technique or um, an- another. Here, here's what it is. The answer is the gospel. You have to actually you have to unleash the power of the gospel in your marriage. That is, husbands, love your wife like what Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The, the, the secret to a, 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 a healthy marriage and a loving marriage is the gospel. It's this. You love your wife the way Jesus sacrificially loved the church. Wives, here's what he says. Submit to your husband. Trust him. When, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, not what I will, you will. I'm going to submit to what you want me to do. What happens? It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the cross. Listen, the key to a happy marriage is modeling the gospel for each other. Um, maybe you're struggling with forgiving yourself. The answer is the gospel. Now, let me give you the 101 answer, and then I'm going to give you the graduate level answer. The 101 answer is, is that um, there's no sin that you could possibly commit that God could not forgive you for. And that is that Jesus died for every sin, including the one you won't forgive yourself for. That's the 101 answer. But let me tell you something else. There's something more insidious at work, even in that. And and that is the reason that people struggle many times with forgiving themselves is because there's something more central to their identity than what God says about them. It's their own self-righteousness. Do you know why many times we won't forgive ourselves? Is because we look on at what we've done and here's what we say. I'm better than that. And I can't believe I actually did that. I'm better than that. Can I tell you something? No, you're not. You are in, you and I are incapable of incredible depravity and sin and ungodliness. And but the problem is, is, is that we look on at what we've done and we say, I just can't believe I did that. And you're, and you're so mad at yourself because we actually believe that we're better than that. Listen, apart from God, that's all we are is that. And what happens is, is that I've got to come to God and when I, when I do this and I say, God, this is me without you. 
And I just want to draw as close to you as possible because I, I hate that. And I never want to do that. And I never want to go there or be that person. But here's what, I, what happens is that when we stumble and fail and we have, man, I can't believe I did that and we struggle forgiving ourselves, it's because we believe we're actually better than that. And the truth is that we're not. Because the gods that we create, the God of our own self-righteousness, the idols that we worship, that we, that we worship as God, listen, none of those gods actually forgive. Only the true and living God forgives. That's what the gospel does. You see, you and I are broken people. And we can either try to hide that fact, or we can bring the broken pieces of our lives to Jesus and ask him to transform us. Um, One of my favorite authors says it this way. He says, the gospel is that I am far worse than I could ever imagine, and simultaneously more loved and accepted by God than I ever dared hope for because of Jesus' death for me. You see, here's what many of us want when we talk about change and transformation. I want God to change me and make me brand new. But I don't want anybody to ever know that I was broken. Listen, there's going to be a time of healing and wholeness and, 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 and being totally new. That place is called heaven. Well, what does God do in, until then? Until then, God takes the broken pieces of our lives and he forms a mosaic. You know what a mosaic is? Basically, this is my definition of a mosaic. A mosaic is a beautiful mess. It is just taking broken pieces of things and turning it into something beautiful. And that's what God wants to do in your life as he wants to do it in mine. But see, we have to be able, we have to get rid of the irreligious facade that says, well, none of it really matters. We have to get rid of the religious facade that says, well, no, nothing's wrong. I'm, I'm okay. I'm totally, I'm not broken. And, and instead, we have to accept the fact that we are broken people and come to Jesus and say, God, here's what I've got. I'm a mess. But can you make me a beautiful mess? You see, to do that, to recognize our brokenness, to recognize that we can come to him and say, God, please, you're the only one that can take this mess and make it beautiful is the beginnings of believing the gospel and the beginnings of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Let's pray together. And Lord, um, I want to thank you for your word because you told us that if we abide by your words, we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. And so I ask God that all of us would preach the gospel to ourselves before preaching it to others, that we would continually preach it to ourselves knowing that we're a broken people that we're a messed up people, but you have the ability and the desire to turn us into a beautiful mess. And so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.